0: This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories Life Best by Tricia Lovar and An Easy Going by Simon Smith. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Life Fest, written and read by Tricia Lovar. Listening time, 2 minutes, 26 seconds.
1: Life Fest by Tricia Lovar. An asphalt shore is just the place for a near-drowned bee. I have just used a stick the size of an eagle's toe to gently move him out of the puddle. He is aspirating, I'm almost sure. "'Sun is in my face, and now the day feels like an unopened letter. "'My eyes zoom in and flare the light. "'The sky's cheeks blow lime-green bubbles our way, and a wind hits. "'Ear to him, he is still breathing through clouds. "'Give it time, I tell him. Let's take a ride. "'I'm not the kind of chick with a magic carpet, "'but rather a rumpled four-door sedan the color of barbecue grates. "'He is on the dashboard, and I open the window like a girl twirling a jump rope. "'I hope you don't mind Bob Dylan, I say. "'Sometimes he paints a nice picture.' i press play and push the pedal down the potholes jostle the half-wake ice cubes inside the cup next to me his wings drawn in head low still black and yellow with simple eyes perhaps he is sleeping we pass stands of peaches and cherries strawberries and oranges all those things you love i love i say shall we share a peach i pull off the road as the car slows he rolls to his left side to squish his antenna a complete stop rolls him back to center The migrant workers drink water from jugs and change out the wet handkerchief around their neck. Be right back, I alert him. The bins of fruit fill the red clapboard hut at the edge of the irrigated fields. Can you believe it? Dozen for two dollars? Incredible, my friend, incredible. I put the brown paper bag of peaches on the front seat, and we veer back on to the highway. We lean back into the car and into the day until that field by the viaduct. All the way to the lower case mountain are the blue-eyed grasses, the chocolate lilies, and the milk thistles. I open the sack, take out one, rub it against my skirt, and bite. Juice drips down my wrist at a whisper's pace. The plastic lid to the cup serves as a saucer now to catch my drips for him. I put it in front of him to see if he'll take it. I'm not sure if it is the car stopping or the morning doves, or the smell of the sweet juice but he comes out of the bee coma. His rhythm is back and hovering. I rest my elbow on the window's ledge as an airplane stretches out as the last noise in the sky. The clouds are in sleep, and I cannot tell him or the breeze to stop. His wings are writing words against my thighs and saying all the things I need to hear. The smell of wild roses makes us ache, and we live.
0: Tricia Lovar is a writer, breaks for furry creatures, and the perfect light. For more of her work, please visit trishalovar.com. An Easy Going. Written and read by Simon Smith. Listing time, 10 minutes, 51 seconds.
2: Ricky Coleman's family believed in reincarnation, when we were kids, Ricky told me that he was going to come back as a newborn tree behind the center field fence at our neighborhood baseball field, a chance offspring to one of the venerable maples that he would frequently splinter with his towering home run balls. Ricky died when I was a senior in college, although I'm sure it was Richard by then. One moment he was riding his rusty 10-speed with his signature bundle of newspapers bungee to the back, and the next he was flattened beneath the tires of an old boat-sized Buick Park Avenue. Even before the accident, the baseball field had already been leveled to make room for a shopping mall, some chain restaurants, and a mammoth parking garage. Because the parking garage was the first thing in town higher than four stories, we had very little to compare it to. The only thing I could think of was a gigantic concrete waterslide. All things considered, it was taller and wider than all the outfield trees put together, which I found depressing. It was my very first girlfriend, Melissa Baumgartner, who asked me what my version of heaven would be like. Her family was Catholic, so Catholic they had a plastic statue of the Virgin Mary perched on the lid of their toilet tank. At the time of her question, we were fifteen or so, sitting at the foot of her small, fluffy white bed. It was a remarkably soft, clean bed, with plush lacy covers and a knobby brass frame. Heaped against the pillows were endless stuffed dogs and bunny rabbits with blackened limbs. It was the kind of bed that only a verdant, demure Midwestern girl could pull off. We were sitting with our backs against it, feeding the record players from Fleetwood Mac and Van Morrison albums. She had just gotten through telling me that in her heaven, she would like to have a mansion set atop the highest mountain imaginable, close enough to touch the sun, but not so hot she couldn't wear warm clothing and heavy blankets at night. I said I wanted a house situated somewhere near the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, low enough to hear the water slap its rocky foundation, but high enough that I could see clear across to the northernmost elbow of Africa if I felt like it. We argued for a while, playfully, about which was better, mountains or the ocean, and then we folded in on one another, collapsing to the carpet in a fit of young, sloppy kisses. Melissa died from a freak blood clot that had been blooming in her brain without her knowledge. Like the spidery cracks that lead to an earthquake she collapsed outside her front door with the key still dangling in the lock it seems like an odd thing to mention but it's true it's also odd but true that upon hearing the news all i could think about was how much she used to love socks i remembered them wadded into pear-shaped globs in the top drawer of her dresser you couldn't even close the drawer all the way she had socks for every occasion Christmas socks, striped socks, zoo socks, running socks, and socks for bumming around the house. Skinny gray ones she didn't mind getting dirty. She used to tease me with them, the way other girls might tease their boyfriend with different kinds of sexy lingerie. My favorites were the wooliest, fuzziest pair she owned, the peach ones I peeled from her otherwise naked body, in the basement one winter morning after church. Thinking of it sends shivers through me. I recall just really, really hoping that wherever she was, she was warm. Shortly after 9-11, I overheard a bunch of construction workers at a McDonald's talking about what sorts of things they'd crash their planes into if they were suicide bombers. One of them said he'd like to take out the abortion clinic in Chicago. He even knew the exact address and everything. A buddy of his had told him that they kept the discarded fetuses out back in the dumpster, and that some of them had fully formed arms and legs. If there's so much as a finger, he said, the ropey veins in his neck bulging, one pinky. And then he stopped. He was holding his pinky in the air, and then he put it down to pick up his burger. He bit into the burger like it had wronged him, like he was getting even. One of them said he would fly directly into the lobby of the Starbucks headquarters, wherever that was, because he thought their business model was gay. Who is going to pay over two dollars for a cup of coffee, he wanted to know. Tinkerbells, he said. That's who. They made a little toast then, tapping their styrofoam cups together at the center of the table. The third and final construction worker said he'd like to crash into his ex-wife's forehead. They had deep, brutish laughs, mashed onions and lettuce juice sprayed from their mouths onto the table. I wouldn't mind crashing into a completely empty field. Maybe I'd plow into that parking garage really late at night for Ricky, where I'd try to find God. I'd track him down. I'd ram God in the balls of an enormous Airbus A380. When my doctor gave me the news that I had lung cancer, I thought about Ricky and Melissa and those three construction workers at McDonald's. None of them got to choose how they would go. This is assuming the construction workers are still alive. Or if they aren't, it's because maybe some random piece of metal or lumber came crashing down on their skulls before they had a chance to think. According to my doctor, I have some time to think. He, Dr. Bowie, gave me anywhere from six months to a year to think about it. The last time I prayed, really truly prayed, was with Melissa back in the 10th grade. We sat on the edge of her bed and prayed that she wouldn't get pregnant. She wrapped the rosary beads round her fingers, made a fist, and wept. I could feel the bed shaking, and I pretended it was God doing it. Kids are so good at make-believe. It makes me jealous. The first few times I tried to pray after the cancer diagnosis, I prayed for recovery. It was a pathetic, delusional kind of whining, and it made me feel horribly dull and proverbial. After a while, I came to my senses and tried praying for a neat, happy death in general. I didn't know what that meant, but I thought praying would help me figure it out. The thing was, I didn't have the faintest idea how to pray anymore. I'd close my eyes and try to picture something soothing or holy, stained glass windows with the sun shining through, or a big wooden cross at the top of a hill with a great big shadow, but nothing would come. A few seconds into a prayer attempt, my mind would start wandering all over the place. I kept thinking about my last visit to the doctor, Did Dr. Boy's voice go up or down when he delivered his analysis of the situation? Did his brow or lips or nostrils suggest anything hopeful or dire? What exactly did he say? How did he say it? Why don't I ever pay attention? I've never been able to focus. Sometimes my grocery list or some other trivial thing would go wafting through my mind, and I'd be useless. A few times, a certain celebrity popped into my head. I don't know how it happened or where it came from. This was a celebrity, a man, that I had seen a thousand times on television or in a movie or on a billboard, in the pages of a tablet at the grocery store, etc. I'd seen other celebrities do impersonations of him, so I'd seen copies, too. I'd seen this man's face a hundred times more than I'd seen the face of Jesus Christ, so it made complete sense to me. I had reoccurring dreams with this celebrity in them. I should say that this was a man that I had always greatly admired. He was the kind of man every other man wanted to be. If you weren't careful, you could imagine this man capable of anything, and that you'd wish you were capable of those things, too. The man stood for impossible, unattainable things, which was maddening and also strangely inspirational in the most irrational of manners. He was unreal in ways he probably had no clue about. This was a guy you'd tell yourself who could pick out his favorite way to spend his afterlife and make it happen, which was ludicrous, but somehow plausible if you let yourself get caught up in things. I mean, not even Jesus Christ got to choose his own death, but still, this celebrity, maybe. Anyway, he'd show up in my dreams. There was one I had that totally scrambled my brain. This celebrity was watching a movie in my house. He was sitting on my sofa and he was looking at my TV. The movie was one that he starred in himself. He was sitting forward, leaning in with his arms on his thighs. I wasn't there. What I mean is that I wasn't physically present. I was watching this scene like someone watching a movie. Like someone watching a movie of someone watching a movie, I guess. At some point, I see the celebrity on my sofa put his head in his hands. He starts moaning. Something about his performance on the television is making him angry. He can't move his hands because if he sees the screen, he'll just get more upset. So he sits there, rocking back and forth, pressing his fingers harder and harder into his eyes. It's then that I notice the most comforting thing. I realize that this celebrity is getting a little fat. I can see a bit of cellulite seeping out below his t-shirt when he rocks forward. His hair has lots of gray patches. And something else, he has really gross long fingernails with dirt in them. This changes everything for me. This makes everything okay. I'd like to have a little conference with myself, make some kind of peace, but I can't find myself anywhere. I've been misplaced or I'm invisible or far away or non-existent, and it's making me terribly anxious. I notice the television screen is fading. It's like somebody has hit the off button, and it's taking an extra long time to go dark. It's in slow motion. In my mind, I am chasing that dimming light on the screen. I want to go where it goes. It's shriveling, the way your pupil shrinks when confronted with intense brightness. Only this is the opposite. This is the opposite of all those stories about glowing orbs of white light and heavenly gates. This is the anti-death, and I like it. I want that perfect silence. That undiluted absence of magic and wishing. The screen is almost black. I watch the final dot go hurtling into nothingness, and I am stricken mute and breathless. And then the news comes on gently by my ear, where the buzzer comes alive, and it grows louder and louder, and the sun rises once more, and with it comes my sensible, reborn body.
0: Simon A. Smith is a writer thingy who lives in Chicago with his new wife and a murderous orange tabby named Cheever. His fiction has appeared in Hobart, Quick Fiction, Monkey Bicycle, Opium, Pank, Story Glossia, Dog's Plot, and a few others. He likes it here. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.